welcome back our fellow patriots to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Today we are continuing our deep dive into the Declaration of Independence. We are finally at the end of our review of the 27-item list of grievances against the king. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. Plus, Mike Gerard is slowly but surely remastering our catalog, starting with our most recent episodes first. A couple of older episodes may have jumped out as newly released episodes, and that is due to the remastering. We hope we didn't confuse anyone. Today, I am joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. We are exploring the final two grievances from the Declaration of Independence. Quote, He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections against us, and he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Unquote. In our last regular episode, we explored the 23rd through 25th grievances that the colonists made against the king. The 23rd grievance addresses how the king declared us out of his protection and waged war against us. The 24th grievance explained that the king plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. And the 25th grievance revealed that the king transported large armies of German and other foreign mercenaries to brutally attack Americans. The last two grievances continued to explore how the king was using force of arms to oppress the Americans. To get us started is Mike Gerard host of his own Be Reasonable podcast and fabulous sound designer of this podcast, Mike Gerard. Take it away. Hi, thank you, Judge. Now, before I jump into the topic at hand, I just want to remind everyone that the Patriot Week Foundation's 8th Annual Patrick Henry Awards is coming up on March 23rd, 2021, and this year, it's via Zoom. We're going to witness Patrick Henry and his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech. And we're going to be joined by Abigail Adams, ABC's Bob Woodruff, retired Brigadier General Douglas Slocum, and a great tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, all with fabulous MC Justice David Viviano. You can check it all out right now at PatriotWeek.org. And now, on to the 26th Grievance Against the King. It is as follows. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. Now, this is a grievance that you likely weren't taught in connection with the American Revolution, but you might remember the same grievance in connection with the War of 1812 against the English, often called the Second War for Independence. And one of the major sparks of the War of 1812 was the impressment of American sailors by the British Navy. I'm very impressed that you know that, Mike Gerard, but I don't understand why having the English pressing the uniforms of American sailors was such a big deal. Oh man, we have got some serious work to do here. I kid, I kid. Well, that is a relief. In any event, impressment was when the British Navy basically abducted American sailors and forced them to work for the British Navy. 
Impressment was a long-standing practice of the Royal Navy to fill empty slots on their ships. For your everyday sailor, serving in the Royal Navy was a grueling, strenuous, and often fatal affair. Because of attrition, poor living conditions, low pay, losses to injury, illness in the war, the Navy was chronically short of manpower. A simple, terrible remedy to fill in the gap was colloquially called impressment. Basically, a Royal Navy press gang would round up homeless men, convicts, and idle seamen in coastal cities and ports and force them into service. In other words, government-sanctioned kidnapping. Another common tactic was for the Navy to board ships at sea and impress sailors on the ships, fabricating excuses on the spot about why the sailors were eligible for impressment. Impressment began as early as the 13th century and was explicitly legalized in 1563 by Queen Elizabeth. She approved an act called an Act Touching Politic Considerations for the Maintenance of the Navy. This act was limited to civilian sailors who could be pressed into service for the Navy. But in 1597, it was expanded by the Vagrancy Act, which allowed men of disrepute to be pressed into service. Many colonists were subjected to this brutal treatment, a direct affront to their unalienable rights of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. In addition, as we know, the colonies had the exact opposite situation than Europe in connection with manpower. Europe was full of people, but scarce in land and opportunity. America was scarce of Europeans, but full of land and opportunity. If, of course, you ignore the claims of Native Americans. Colonial resentment mounted, and strong condemnation of the practice was made to the imperial capital. And finally, under Queen Anne, Parliament passed an act in 1708 called the Sixth of Anne, which exempted the colonies from impressment. So you could easily imagine the colonies declaring, here comes the sun. Yes, indeed. Here comes the sun. I just meant that they were really happy. That's all. (laughs) Ha ha, got you. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say, it's alright. You know, I engineer these clips, and when I worked on this Beatles clip, I kept getting an error, too noisy, and I couldn't agree more. It's all just noise. Alright, but back to business. That actually was a completely inappropriate song because the sun soon set on the joy of the colonists. The Sixth of Anne was only a temporary respite. In 1723, the Royal Navy implemented a policy of impressment in the Americas despite the Sixth of Anne. This sparked colonial protest, which in turn led to another impressment act in 1746. But unlike the Sixth of Anne, it only banned impressment in the West Indies. The British Navy took Parliament's refusal to officially reenact the 6th of Anne as free license to begin anew a robust campaign of impressment in the colonies. And remember, impressment was a terrible fate. Historian Kevin Phillips emphasized the awful reality. To describe impressment into the Royal Navy as carrying a fate of death or slavery was only a slight exaggeration. Three out of four men who were pressed died within two years, with only one in five killed in battle. 
The consequences of impressment were not isolated just to the sailor and his immediate family. But by kidnapping Americans from seaports and the high seas, impressment had serious collateral effects. Historian Christopher Magra elaborates on the destructive ripple effects. Press gangs were not just instruments of terror. They prematurely ended individual fishing expeditions, and they delayed and destroyed individual trade voyages. Press gangs reduced colonial exports. They disrupted imports and increased prices for consumers. They removed free laborers from competitive labor markets. While they were not enough to fully reverse the overall trend of economic growth in the colonies, these hardships were sufficient to convince a portion of Americans that their fears and jealousies were justified. In other words, the economy was blistered by impressment. Individual sailors were losing their freedoms and the rest of the colonies were suffering as well. The Americans weren't going to take this campaign of impressment lying down. As a brief aside, historian Christopher Magra is going to be a guest on an upcoming Patriot Lessons TV show about impressment. And you can check out the Patriot Lessons TV show on PatriotWeek.org. But for right now, Professor Magra relates how resentment against impressment resulted in a series of lawsuits and, at times, exploded into violent resistance. Violent resistance to press gangs escalated in North America in connection with this mounting disaffection. The number of anti-impressment riots increased around this time. Two-thirds of all American riots between 1700 and 1765, including those that were aimed at press gangs, occurred after 1744. North Americans had a notorious reputation for suing naval officers who violated the 6th of Anne. There have long been difficulties when pressing men in North America. But Commodore Charles Knowles of the Royal Navy wrote in the wake of a three-day impressment riot in Boston, after the 1746 Act, they were insurmountable. While the British, of course, were appalled by the lawsuits and riots, the Americans believed they were completely justified to defend the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Samuel Adams would later be one of the mainsprings of the Sons of Liberty and the Resistance in Boston. But in 1747, he vociferously condemned impressment. In light of the three-day anti-impressment riot in Boston in 1747 that Professor Magra just mentioned, infamously known in history as the Knowles Riot because they were sparked in opposition to impressment by Commodore Knowles, Samuel Adams began to foreshadow many of the arguments that would appear in the Declaration of Independence. He asked, what were the people to do in light of this oppression? He answered, exercise their right to revolution. When I reflect on the consternation the inhabitants of this town were in last Tuesday morning, I don't in the least wonder at the people's running together for their mutual defense. For when they are suddenly attacked, without the least warning, and by they know not whom, I think they are treated as in a state of nature and have a natural right to treat their oppressors as under such circumstances. The press gangs were tools of arbitrary power and lawless invaders of our liberty. A similar riot broke out in Newport, Rhode Island in 1765. Impressment was endangering long-simmering disputes just underneath the surface, ready to explode at a moment's notice. 
It is with this background that we can better appreciate what many historians believe is the main impetus for the penultimate grievance of the Declaration. As we've discussed in prior episodes, in the aftermath of the Boston Tea Party, resistance to the intolerable acts, Lexington and Concord, and other military skirmishes, the king had declared the colonies in rebellion and out of his protection. On December 21, 1775, Parliament passed the Prohibitory Act, which authorized, actually encouraged, the seizing of all American vessels and impressment of entire crews. Before this act, impressment, as terrible as it was, was limited to selected unfortunates. Now, anyone on an American ship was fair game. Those impressed weren't treated as civilians or even prisoners of war. They essentially became the slaves of the Royal Navy. And as such, the impressed were forced to fight against their kin, fellow Americans, or be imprisoned or executed for insubordination. Of course, if they fought, they could often be killed in battle at the hands of their fellow Americans. This obviously was an outrage of the highest order, unbefitting a civilized nation. The British enslaved impressed sailors to fight for them, but they were not done seeking assistance in their oppression of the colonists. They surveyed the continent and realized that they had other, perhaps eager, potential allies they could leverage to help crush the nascent rebellion. Historian Kevin Phillips summarizes the landscape. Officials in Britain counted multiple opportunities. Disaffection could be encouraged, and military alliances or enlistments could be obtained from each group. The roughly 200,000 Native Americans living east of the Mississippi River the 50,000 to 75,000 present and former white convicts and indentured servants, perhaps most rewardingly, the nearly 500,000 black slaves. A rough estimate is that the colonies had about 2,100,000 free white people in 1776. Meanwhile, there were nearly 750,000 enslaved persons, Native Americans, current or former convicts, and indentured servants that were potentially hostile to the free white colonists. The British eagerly saw this as a fifth column they could exploit to take down the colonials. And so the last grievance addresses this powder keg. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is indistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Now, there's a great deal to unpack here, and there's some more embedded in this grievance than might seem so on the surface. We all understand that slavery was a despicable stain on American colonial life, and that many came to America as indentured servants. My guess, however, is that you probably didn't realize that many came to America as convicts. You might have a vague notion that Australia began as a penal colony, but America? You betcha. And so if you have colonial blood, you might be descended from these miscreant convicts from England, Scotland, or Ireland. Hey, uh, Brent, you're kind of unsavory. Why don't you take the section on convicts? Why, you good for nothing? Uh, uh, oh, wait, are, are we still recording? <clears throat> I mean, why thank you, Mike Gerard, for giving me 
the pleasant opportunity to tell the story of your family's origins. What? I kid, I kid. You just make a little joke. I joke with you. Okay, back to convicts. In 1776, historians roughly estimate that approximately 15,000 convicts resided in the colonies. And we don't mean people convicted of crimes in the colonies. We mean felons who committed their crimes elsewhere and were punished by being shipped to the colonies. Yes, a criminal defendant could be convicted of a crime and his punishment was to be shipped to America. You might think, that's not much of a punishment. After all, many in Europe were coming to America to start a new life. The convict would be obtaining a windfall, free transport to the land of the free. A person might commit a crime just to get to America. But that isn't really how it worked. The convict was not only shipped to America, he had to serve a time of involuntary servitude. Under the Transportation Act of 1717, depending on the severity of the sentence, convicts were sentenced to spend seven or 14 years of indentured servitude in America. That sounds harsh, but the 14-year sentence was in lieu of execution. Once someone was sentenced, a private merchant would post a bond to ensure that the convict was transported to America and perform his service. Someone in the colony would then pay the merchant for the convict's services. From the passage of the Transportation Act of 1717 until the American Revolution, approximately 50,000 convicts reached the shores of America. If a convict completed his term, he was freed and, in essence, pardoned. If he avoided his service or returned to the British Isles before he was done, he would be executed. Illustrating the power of Adam Smith's invisible hand, because convicts typically had longer terms of service, their contracts were a bit more expensive than traditional indentured servants. Although labor was desperately needed in the colonies, many colonists vociferously opposed the transports. In a May 9, 1751 article, Benjamin Franklin anonymously wrote about the despised policy. This exporting of felons to the colonies may be considered as a trade, as well as in the light of a favor. Now all commerce implies returns. Justice requires them. There can be no trade without them. And rattlesnakes seem the most suitable returns for the human serpents sent us by our mother country. In this, however, as in every other branch of trade, she will have the advantage of us. She will reap equal benefits without equal risk of the inconveniences and dangers. For the rattlesnake gives warning before he attempts his mischief, which the convict does not. The British reaction? <laughs> As Cesar Romero's Joker just revealed, the British laughed off Franklin's critiques and continued the policy of offloading prisoners in America. Convicts faced brutality as soon as they were convicted, on the passage to the New World, and then through years of toil in the colonies. As property, they could be sold and traded away just like any other property. 
Like slaves, they could even be inherited. The convicts were forced to work for those who paid for their servitude, which usually meant grueling and unrelenting work. The result? Often death. According to Kevin Phillips, one British official estimated that half of all convicts were dead within seven years. Many were in essence treated no differently than chattel slaves. But, in an unexpected twist, since slaves were held for their entire lives and could pass on their enslavement to their children, thereby enriching the slaveholder, slaves were often treated better than convicts. After all, the incentive for the master of the convict was to squeeze every ounce of work out of the convict. And if the convict dropped dead the day after his release, the master couldn't care less. Slaves, on the other hand, were lifetime investments, so the incentives were to let them live a long life, well, at least until old age, and produce children. In any event, it was a miserable life for most convicts. This all explains why the convicts were alienated from colonial society and a potential source of uprising against the colonies that the British Empire could exploit. Another category of very similarly situated people were indentured servants. Unlike convicts, indentured servants undertook their servitude willingly. There were easily twice as many indentured servants in America as convicts. In fact, in 1776, indentured servants and convicts together totaled between 50,000 and 75,000 people. Remarkably, about 51% of the total non-slave immigrants to America in the colonial period were either convicts or indentured servants. However, because they were freed at the end of their terms of servitude, and their children were never born into servitude, their overall numbers at any given time were relatively low. Typically, an indentured servant's term of servitude lasted seven years, although it could vary. The indentured servants gained free passage to America in exchange for their indentured labor. They may have regretted that trade. The condition of involuntary servitude was often just as brutal as the convicts. In fact, somewhat akin to the enslaved peoples, masters were often kinder to convicts with 14-year terms because they were a longer-term investment. So, perversely, the voluntary indentured servants with 7-year terms were often treated much harsher than convicts with 14-year terms or chattel slaves. And just like convicts and slaves, the indentured servants were treated as property— they could be traded and sold at will. For the same reasons applicable to convicts, the British Empire saw that indentured servants were ripe pickings to become allies. Certainly, the convicts and indentured servants held lower social status than their free European counterparts, and in the land of opportunity, a concerted uprising by them would provoke fear in the hearts of colonists. These fears became realized when John Murray, the Earl of Dunmore and Virginia's royal governor, issued a proclamation on November 7, 1775, offering to free all indentured servants, so long as they would join His Majesty's troops to fight against the rebels. It should be noted that at this time, Dunmore was desperate. He literally had no position at all in Virginia, 
Instead, he was floating on a warship on the Virginian coast. Despite the benefits offered by the Dunmore and the Empire, the number of indentured servants taking advantage of the offer seems to have been small. A number of factors probably played into this, including the voluntary status of most indentured servants and the temporary status of their indentured service. They could see light at the end of the tunnel. In any event, the indentured were admittedly small in population compared to free European descendants in the colonies. But the empire was not content with just targeting convicts and indentured servants. Indeed, the British spied additional potential allies, those who did not have a temporary status or had taken their disadvantaged position in the colonies willingly or because of something they had brought unto themselves. And those potential allies would provoke true terror in the eyes of the colonists. Mike Gerard, I'm handing the baton back to you. Wait, wait, wait. I have a cautionary note on terminology. Mike Gerard is about to discuss how the British were going to try to make allies of Native Americans against the colonists. First, when we quote original primary sources, they all use the word Indians or even savages. We understand and are highly sensitive to the fact that those terms are considered inaccurate, insensitive, and downright derogatory by many. But history is history. So when we quote primary sources, we will not change the terms. Just remember, we didn't write the documents. Likewise, many of the history books we use use the old terms, Indian or American Indians, terminology, and we won't change those either. This is an educational program, and we would be doing a disservice to accuracy and truth if we change the words. Second, We also understand that there are several competing phrases used for the people the Founding Fathers referred to as Indians. So, when we are not quoting others, we will have to grapple with the best term. Native Americans, Aborigines, Indigenous Peoples, American Indians, First Nations, and First Peoples are some of the more modern and frequently used phrases, and some seem to be more appropriate in some contexts than others. Really, the most precise way is to specifically refer to each tribal nation. For example, the Cherokee Nation or the Choctaw Nation. And normally, I agree with Jordan Peterson that we should be more precise with our language. But here, that really is not how the Second Continental Congress or the founding generation viewed or addressed Native Americans. And we are trying to get into the heads of the Founding Fathers to understand the Declaration of Independence. So to be historically accurate and precise while using modern terminology, we should be more general. We could have several podcast episodes about this important and interesting debate, but we are trying to get through the grievances of the Declaration of Independence. And we are so close. We are on our last grievance. We know whatever we use, someone out there will be less than completely satisfied. It seems that in the legal field, as well as in general web searches, Native Americans is the prevailing phraseology. In fact, I had a great conversation a few weeks ago with a tribal judge in Michigan who preferred Native American, so that's what we're going to go with. Again, if you disagree, please just bear with us as we get through this portion of the episode. We are doing this in good faith and honoring everyone involved. Okay, Mike Gerard, take it away. Why, thank you, Judge, for that important caveat. Now, we all know that when the English and other European settlers came to America, it was populated by Native Americans. 
and the intersection of Europeans and Native Americans is a fascinating but often sad story about the destruction of lives and cultures of Native Americans, as well as the loss of lives of settlers. And that story, aspiring podcasters, would be a fascinating one to explore. But for our purposes, we have to use very high-level, broad-brush strokes. At the time of the American Revolution, approximately 200,000 Native Americans lived east of the Mississippi River. Many were allied with English forces, and many were not. Suffice it to say that before the Revolution, tensions among Native Americans and colonists often ran very high. Skirmishes, raids, and outright massacres weren't uncommon. The colonists close to the frontier had a constant threat of confrontation with Native Americans. As a result of the French and Indian War, the English won Canada from the French Empire and took control, well, from a colonial standpoint, of the huge swaths of land of the western frontier, west of the Allegheny Mountains. In a move that enraged many colonists, the empire decided to tamp down on the confrontation between the colonialists and the Native Americans by issuing the Proclamation Act on October 7, 1763. Now, we did discuss the Proclamation Act in a prior episode. It drew a western boundary, roughly along the Allegheny Mountains. So that means the colonists were barred from settling west of the mountains, which in theory would dramatically decrease violent and other confrontations between the Native Americans and the colonists. But as we learned before, this was a vain hope. The colonists easily evaded the proclamation line and tensions and clashes between colonists and Native Americans mounted. And one monumental explosion arising from these tensions occurred as a result of colonists flooding into the Ohio Valley, much of today's Midwest. The Ottawa Nation's chief Pontiac started Pontiac's War, sometimes called Pontiac's Rebellion, when he led an assault on Fort Detroit on May 7, 1763. After the Native Americans achieved some initial successes, the British prevailed in a protracted campaign and forced Chief Pontiac to sign a peace treaty in 1766. I just have to interrupt for a second. My old school district had an Ottawa Middle School. Right, Rob? And I work in Pontiac, Michigan, the county seat, which is named in tribute to Chief Pontiac. And that now defunct GM Carbram was also named after him. Carry on. Why, thanks, Judge. And now, I suspect most of us don't give a second thought of the origins of many street, school, and city names that we pass every day, including those that are named to commemorate Native Americans. And, hi Rob. Suffice it to say that after Pontiac's war, the tensions between colonists and Native Americans remained high. When the colonists began to give the empire serious heartache, the British, after a bit of debate in England, decided to exploit Native Americans to help crush the colonists. Englishman John Lind, a barrister who wrote a riveting pamphlet in opposition to the Declaration of Independence, cut to the quick when justifying recruitment of the Native American allies. Since force has become necessary to support the authority of Parliament, that force which is most easily to be procured and most likely to be effective is the force which ought to be employed. I should be bold enough to avow that to me it would make little difference whether the instrument be a German or a Kalmak, a Russian or a Mohawk. Now, Lind may have been crass, but he spoke the truth. Whatever it took, or rather, 
whoever it took to win the war the English would use. As early as 1774, Royal Virginia Governor Lord Dunmore was recruiting Native American allies. Governor Thomas Gage in Massachusetts also solicited a number of Native American nations. In addition, Gage ordered Canada's government, Guy Carleton, to raise Native American troops, and his overtures to the Six Nations was largely successful. The British superintendent recruited Creeks and Chicksaws in South Carolina. The governor of North Carolina also followed Gage's lead. Meanwhile, imperial diplomats ventured into the Ohio Valley, encouraging Native Americans to attack colonial settlers. These efforts had a huge psychological impact on the colonists. Remember, many of the colonists had a mixed view of Native Americans. In part, they admired Native Americans as, please forgive the phrase, noble savages. And on the other hand, they were considered, again, please forgive this characterization, as uncivilized, bloodthirsty killers who would massacre and scalp men, women, and children. Now, although the fears of a Native American onslaught would end up being grossly exaggerated, several bloody episodes did erupt. Native Americans engaged in several massacres of colonial settlements on the frontiers of various colonies. But to be fair, the colonists also weren't above recruiting Native Americans to their patriot cause. In fact, historians are really unable to sort out who approached the Native Americans first. The most likely reality is that the British and the colonists were simultaneously recruiting local Native American allies. Just like the British, Americans would take whatever allies they could find. Nevertheless, in balance, the British gained many more Native American allies than the colonists. The fear of being overrun by bloodthirsty Native Americans was real and began to find voice in many American protests against British tyranny. For example, on July 6, 1775, the Second Continental Congress proclaimed in the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms that We have received certain intelligence that General Carleton, the Governor of Canada, is instigating the people of that province and the Indians to fall upon us. And we have but too much reason to apprehend that schemes have been formed to excite domestic enemies against us. These fears were vindicated. The original attacks in the frontiers were provoked by the British, but the British didn't join in. Soon enough, the English and some Native Americans joined together to wage war. For example, in December 1775, South Carolina Patriots engaged in a heated battle with hundreds of Loyalists and Native Americans. Although the Patriots won the battle, the fear of Native Americans joining forces with the English Empire was being realized. In early 1776, in common sense, Thomas Paine condemned British efforts to turn Native Americans against the colonists, referring to such plans as recruiting cruel, brutal, and hellish power. He argued that British alliance with Native Americans proved that reconciliation with the empire was impossible. A few months later, on April 23, 1776, South Carolina Supreme Court Justice Henry Drayton opened the Court of General Sessions of Peace, Offer, and Terminer, Assist, and General Jail Delivery. Wow, now that's really a title. 
And so customarily, the Chief Justice Drayden would charge jurors at the beginning of a new session of the court. And ordinarily, this would just be a statement of the duties of the jurors and an outline of the law. But these were not ordinary times. South Carolina was well ahead of the other colonies in moving towards independence, and in fact it adopted a new state constitution less than a month earlier and disavowed British rule. Foreshadowing the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, Chief Justice Drayton reviewed many of the grievances of South Carolina against the British Empire and gave particular emphasis to inciting Native Americans against the colonists. For the little purpose of disarming the imprisoned inhabitants of Boston, the king's general Gage, in the face of day, violated the public faith, by himself plighted, and in concert with other governors and with John Stuart, he made every attempt to instigate the savage nations to wage war upon the southern colonies, indiscriminately to massacre man, woman, and child, the governors in general have demonstrated that truth is not in them. Chief Justice Drayton's characterization was shared by many colonists. An avalanche of colonial denunciations followed the same theme. Just one month before the Declaration of Independence, Native Americans fought against American troops in Canada, including at the Battle of Trois-Rivières on June 8, 1776. That stinging defeat of the Americans dashed any hope that they could conquer Canada. Perhaps heady with their recent victory on the very eve of American independence, that is on July 1st, 1776, English troops joined the Cherokee Nation, the Shawnee Nation, and other Native Americans and let loose a multi-colony, multi-pronged attack. Attacks occurred in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. But this ended up being a great tactical error. Soon, General Charles Lee, the commander of the Southern American Continental Forces, launched a counterattack dubbed the Cherokee Campaign of 1776. This counterattack was devastating. The Cherokee Campaign crushed Native American forces and more than 50 Cherokee settlements were utterly destroyed. In the end, the Native American allies didn't have either the psychological or the military effect that the Americans originally feared. However, that Native Americans continued joint military operations with the English became a standard rallying cry for the Patriot cause. Thomas Paine would repeatedly invoke this alliance as barbaric in his series of essays called The American Crisis, which would strengthen the resolve and bolster the morale of the American patriots. And for our last segment, we turn it over to Judge Warren. Thanks, Mike Gerard. It will be my pleasure. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now it's my turn for a cautionary note on terminology. Judge Warren is about to discuss how the British were going to try to make allies of enslaved peoples against the colonists. Now, first, when we quote original primary sources, they all nearly use the word slaves. In addition, some of the secondary sources use older terminology to identify Native Americans, like Black or Negro. As we did with Native Americans, we won't alter the original terminology used in any primary or secondary sources we quote. And second, we also know that terminology has changed over the years, and we're going to refer to African Americans when referring to Americans who were either born in Africa or their descendants, 
which is the more modern parlance. With regards to African Americans brought over in bondage, we also know that some prefer the term of enslaved person versus slave, and we respect that debate. Since the terminology was clearly slave at the time of the American Revolution, for historical accuracy's sake, we'll stick with that. Again, we could have several podcast episodes about this important and interesting debate, but we're trying to get through the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, and we're literally on the last portion of the last grievance. So no detours now. And again, if you disagree with our terminology, please just bear with us as we get through this portion of the episode. I mean, it's all in good faith with the intention of respecting everyone involved. All right, so on that note, Judge Warren, take it away. Well put, Mike Gerard. So the British looked across the chessboard of war against the Americans and hoped they could call upon convicts, indentured servants, and Native Americans. But the biggest prize, the one they had the largest potential payoff by far, were the 500,000 slaves in the colonies. Now, to explore the full dynamics of slavery in the pre-colonial era is worthy of its own podcast. Hint, hint. Nudge, nudge to all you aspiring podcasters out there. The key for this grievance is that there were hundreds of thousands of slaves, especially in the southern colonies, and the free white population was full of dread of this sleeping giant awakening and overwhelming it in a violent uprising. As historian Herbert Aptheker recounted, Fear of slave revolts and the panic that ensued upon the discovery or supposed discovery of plots or the suppression of revolts were factors of prime importance in the social, political, and economic life of the United States. This panic was no rare phenomenon. An examination of the laws and customs regulating slavery substantiate this fear of revolt. Laws or customs provided abysmal ignorance, patrols, passes, no arms to slaves, no resistance to whites, no anti-slavery agitation, and price of divide and rule, division between poor whites and slaves, domestic and field slaves, and the drivers and the mass of Negro slaves. Spying and the Christian doctrine of resignation reinforced these instruments of class rule in America's slave system. Three mounting pressures were beginning to clash. The first mounting pressure was numerical, or rather demographic. The number of slaves in the colonies increased dramatically from 1750 until 1776. For example, the number of slaves in Virginia doubled to 300,000, and in South Carolina, the numbers tripled. With the increased population came growing fears of an uprising. The second mounting pressure was attitudinal. Slavery was finally being viewed with growing suspicion by free peoples. In fact, the first official anti-slavery petition in the colonies was issued by the Religious Society of Friends, that's the Quakers, in 1688, in what has been dubbed the Germantown Quaker Petition Against Slavery. It was authored by Daniel Pastoris of Germantown, Pennsylvania. In 1750, the Quakers, which at that time had been dominated by slaveholders, put their money where their mouths were and prohibited slavery among those that practiced the religion. Georgia, of all places, originally refused to permit slavery within its borders. It took until 1750 before it was legalized in the colony. Unfortunately, it soon spread like wildfire, and Georgia would quickly become one of the staunchest supporters of the dreaded institution. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, Boston lawyer Benjamin Kent took to the courts to fight against slavery. He successfully represented 17 slaves who filed suit for their freedom between 1764 and 1774. 
On the eve of the revolution in 1775, the first American abolitionist society was formed by Quakers in Philadelphia. Originally, it was named the Society for Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage, and later known as the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. Furthermore, many colonies tried to suppress the slave trade, but the British Empire rejected those attempts. More on that in a future episode. Despite the empire's protection of the slave trade, some cracks in the edifice of slavery were starting to become visible. In a groundbreaking opinion in 1772, Somerset v. Stuart, Lord Mansfield, Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench, ruled that an escaped slave would be free. In particular, James Somerset was a slave from Jamaica who escaped from bondage after he was brought to England with his enslaver. He was caught on English soil and literally was on a ship to be transported back to Jamaica to be resold, but the English court intervened and set him free. Lords Mansfield reasoned, No master ever was allowed here in England to take a slave by force to be sold abroad because he deserted from his service. Therefore, the man must be discharged. No, this did not mean that all slaves in England were now free, and it did not end the slave trade, but it was a serious beachhead of emancipation. The third mounting pressure was actual slave revolts. The first documented colonial slave revolt happened in 1663 when indentured servants joined slaves in a rebellion in Gloucester, Virginia, and uprisings would continue all the way until the American Revolution. The largest slave revolt before the revolution was the Stono Rebellion, otherwise known as Cato's Conspiracy and Cato's Rebellion. This was not pretty. Historian Henry Louis Gates crisply explains, On Sunday, September 9, 1739, a day free of labor, about 20 slaves under the leadership of a man named Jemmy provided whites with a painful lesson on the African desire for liberty. Many members of the group were seasoned soldiers, either from the Yamasee War or from their experiences in their homes in Angola, where they were captured and sold and had been trained in the use of weapons. They gathered at the Stono River and raided a warehouse-like store, Hutchinson's, executing the white owners and placing their victims' heads on the store's front steps for all to see. They moved on to other houses in the area, killing the occupants and burning the structures, marching through the colony toward St. Augustine, Florida, where under Spanish law, they would be free. The uprising was eventually crushed by the South Carolina militia, but that did not break the spirit of the colony slaves. There were several uprisings the very next year, leading to the execution of 50 additional slaves. South Carolina was the scene of increased slave resistance from 1737 to 1740. Just as things were settling down in South Carolina, hundreds of miles away in 1741, a series of fires began in New York City, culminating in the burning down of the city's Fort George. After an intense investigation, an indentured servant from Ireland, who was all of 16 years old, was arrested for theft, and he claimed that the fires were started by slaves with help from a few whites. He warned that there was a conspiracy to burn down the city and slaughter white men and kidnap white women. Others turned state's evidence and finger-pointing reminiscent of the Salem witch trials began. Eventually, it all led to the execution of 30 African Americans, two white men, and two white women. Thirteen of the executed African Americans were burned at the stake. Another 80 people were banished to, among other places, Canada, St. Domingo, now Haiti, and Caraco. 
Whether there really was a revolt or this was all an elaborate fabrication has not been satisfactorily answered. But what is important for our purpose is that many of the colonists believed that such a conspiracy and revolt occurred and were terrified it would happen again. And really, they had good reason to believe it. In 1712, New York was the scene of an undoubtedly true slave rebellion. Fears of slave uprisings gripped Williamton, North Carolina in 1775, South Carolina in 1775, and Georgia in 1776. Whether there was any truth to these plots is difficult to discern, but they increased colonial fears of slave revolts. One particularly heinous incident occurred in South Carolina when in the summer of 1775, Thomas Jeremiah of Charleston was accused of plotting an insurrection and encouraging slaves to flee to the British to gain their freedom. Jeremiah was a very wealthy, free African-American who was a harbor pilot and actually owned his own slaves. No matter, the authorities quickly brought him to trial and he was sentenced to be executed in a week. The royal governor, Lord William Campbell, judges and attorneys uninvolved in the case, and two prominent Anglican ministers, Robert Cooper and Robert Smith, all protested. They claimed that Jeremiah had not received due process and the evidence was too weak to support the conviction. No matter, on August 18, 1775, when they put the noose around his neck, Jeremiah declared, God's judgment will one day overtake you for shedding my innocent blood. Jeremiah was hanged and his body was burned. And historical consensus has emerged, finding that Jeremiah suffered in what we would consider today to be a show trial with the thinly veiled purpose of keeping African Americans in their place. Irrespective of this terrible injustice, it fed colonial fears of slave insurrection. And colonial fears were further exacerbated by global events. A ferocious and long-lasting slave revolt rocked Suriname in South America in the 1750s. And Tacky's Rebellion in Jamaica burst into the scene in 1760. They were both widely publicized and seared into the consciousness of American slaveholders. Although, as we reviewed, some colonists desired to end slavery, others were diabolical in its defense, and many more, not necessarily caring one way or the other, were simply terrified of a slave uprising. The English moved on this fear. As early as 1774, the British in London began discussing emancipating slaves and enlisting African Americans in the armed forces. In 1775, military governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Gage, wrote to the Secretary at War, Lord Barrington, that We must avail ourselves of every resource, even to raise Negroes in our cause. This advice was carefully considered. On October 26, 1775, William Henry Littleton, an ally of Lord North and former royal governor of South Carolina, moved on the floor of the House of Commons that imperial policy should be to encourage slaves to rise up against their masters with the support of British troops. But the measure failed 278 to 108. Despite the vote, and the vote was almost certainly not yet known in the colonies, Virginia's governor, Lord Dunmore, acted to gain African-American allies. Recall, he was on His Majesty's ship William off the coast of Norfolk, desperate to win back some foothold in Virginia. On November 7, 1775, in the same proclamation that offered indentured servants freedom, Lord Dunmore proclaimed the following. I do, in virtue of the power and authority given to me by His Majesty, determined to execute martial law. I do require every person capable of bearing arms to resort to His Majesty's standard, or be looked upon as traitors 
to his majesty's crown and government, and thereby become liable to the penalty the law inflicts upon such offences, such as forfeiture of life, confiscation of lands, etc., and I do hereby farther declare all indented servants, negroes or others appertaining to rebels, who are able and willing to bear arms to join his majesty's troops as soon as possible to speedily reduce this colony to a proper sense of their duty to his majesty's crown and dignity. So there it was. Dunmore declared martial law, declared anyone not joining the British cause to be traitors, and then outright proclaimed that slaves could have their freedom, so long as they took arms against the patriots. When word of Dunmore's proclamation was received by George Washington, he emphatically expressed a view that no doubt reverberated with many Americans. That arch-traitor to the rights of humanity, Lord Dunmore, should be instantly crushed. Otherwise, like a snowball rolling, his army will get size. Indeed, if Dunmore's proclamation was intended to shock and awe the colonists into submission, it had the opposite result. Historian Merrill Jensen concluded that this proclamation won over more Virginians to the cause of independence than all the prior acts of Parliament. Historian Simon Shema agrees. Instead of being cowed by the threat of a British armed liberation of their blacks, the slaveholding population mobilized to resist. The news that the British troops would liberate their blacks, then give them weapons and their blessings to use them on their masters, persuaded many into thinking that perhaps the militant patriots were right, and that the British government, in tearing up the bonds of civil society, as Washington had put it, might be capable of any iniquity. As word of Lord Dunmore's proclamation spread, as well as gossip and whispers of other British plans to free and enlist slaves, many fled their bondage for asylum in British military posts and ships. But despite colonist fears, there were no slave uprisings. But what about turning the newly freed slaves into soldiers against the colonies? Dunmore organized about 800 freed slaves into what was dubbed the Ethiopian Regiment, but they were never put into battle. Instead, smallpox took a hideous toll. Dunmore left for England in August of 1776 with only 300 of the original 800 Ethiopian regiment soldiers. To put down the colonists, the British Empire was pulling at every string it could, including exploiting the internal weaknesses of convicts, indentured servants, Native Americans, and slaves. And generally, it backfired by pushing greater numbers of lukewarm loyalists, neutrals, and less committed patriots into the arms of insurrection. Chief Justice Drayton vividly exemplified how the strategy enraged the colonists. The governors, in general, have demonstrated that truth is not in them. They have enviled Negroes from and have armed them against their masters. They have armed brother against brother, son against father. Oh, almighty director of the universe! What confidence can be put in a government ruling by such engines and upon such principles of unnatural destruction? The grievance was so palpable that it was the only one that Congress added to Thomas Jefferson's draft. They actually substituted it after striking another out. Jefferson had strongly condemned the king for allowing the barbaric slave trade. More about that in a future episode. The Congress decided to excise that condemnation. They replaced it with this last grievance. Yes, slavery was included, but in exactly the opposite fashion Jefferson had suggested. 
By this point, you probably think that the colonists were deeply suspicious of slaves and even freed African Americans and would consider all of them either covert or overt enemies. But Americans are so complicated when it comes to race. In fact, some slaves and many freed African Americans enlisted in the Patriot cause and fought as well. African Americans served bravely at Bunker Hill and in many battles all the way through the end of the war. Although there are some racially segregated units, for the most part, they served an integrated corps, being distributed throughout various regiments, and they performed gloriously. Indeed, listen to this account by Baron Ludwig van Klosen, an aide to General Jean-Baptiste Rochambeau, the French commander of French forces at Yorktown. Three quarters of the Rhode Island Regiment consists of Negroes, and that regiment is the most neatly dressed, the best under arms, and the most precise in its maneuvers. I tip my hat to those valiant soldiers. The British, on the other hand, scoffed at this entire grievance and the one about impressment before it. Former Massachusetts Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson summarized the royalist view of the last two grievances expressed in the Declaration. These, my lord, would be weighty charges from a loyal and dutiful people against an unprovoked sovereign. They are more than the people of England pretended to bring against King James II in order to justify the revolution. Never was there an instance of more consummate effrontery, the acts of a justly incensed sovereign for suppressing a most unnatural, unprovoked rebellion, are here assigned as the causes of this rebellion. It is immaterial whether they are true or false. They are all short of the penalty of the laws which had been violated. Before the date of any one of them, the colonists had as effectually renounced their allegiance by their deeds as they have done since by their words. They had displaced the civil and military officers appointed by the king's authority and set up others in their stead. They had new-modelled their civil governments and appointed a general government independent of the king over the whole. They had taken up arms and made a public declaration of their resolution to defend themselves against the force employed to support his legal authority over them. To subjects who had forfeited their lives by acts of rebellion, every act of the sovereign against them which falls short of the forfeiture is an act of favour. A most ungrateful return has been made for this favour. It has been improved to strengthen and confirm the rebellion against him. In other words, even if these grievances were true, so what? The colonists were rebels and deserved to be annihilated. In fact, they should be grateful that the king didn't bring even worse pestilence and destruction on them. The king was being merciful, and that mercy was being rejected by scoundrels. Whatever bite Hutchinson's sharp comments might have possibly had was long ignored by the colonists' view that the king was simply acting barbarically against the colonists. Thomas Paine was an abolitionist, but that did not stop him from quickly dispatching with Hutchinson's arguments in common sense. Ye that oppose independence now, ye know not what ye do. Ye are opening a door to eternal tyranny by keeping vacant the seat of government. There are thousands and tens of thousands who would think it glorious to expel from the continent the barbarous and hellish power which hath stirred up the Indians and Negroes to destroy us. The cruelty hath a double guilt. It is dealing brutally by us and treacherously by them. Yes, Paine was a master with the written word. 
That's part of the reason we commemorate him in Patriot Week. Some key takeaways from this episode. The Declaration of Independence is not just a declaration of principles and lofty sentiments, but it lists a specific set of grievances by which the British Empire had violated the first principles of free and just government. The 26th grievance addresses how the king cruelly violated the rule of law. On Alamba writes, the social compact and limited government by forcing Americans into brutal and often fatal impressment. The final grievance explains how the king furthered his plan for crushing Americans' liberties by trying to turn convicts, indentured servants, Native Americans, and slaves into instrumentalities of destruction. These grievances confirm that the American Revolution was fought to defend liberty from a cruel king and the first principles of free and just government. Please join us for our next general episode when we move on to the next section of the Declaration of Independence. In particular, quote, In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our tensions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and can sanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in necessity, which denounces our separation, and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. Unquote. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org for many fabulous resources, including our new daily video series, Save Our Republic. I'm Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skadechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, fabulous dad and husband and the host with the most. Our fellow Patriots, thank you for listening. And don't forget about the Patrick Henry Awards via Zoom on March 23rd, 2021. Visit PatriotWeek.org for more details. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. 
also considered Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.